0: It is good to see you. Wow, we're on now. (laughs) Good to see you. Good to see some of you back. Good to see some of you uh, that are visiting us. And I'd like to encourage you to take out your outline. Because we're in part five of a series called Text Messages. And what I want to look at today, last week I mentioned to you that there were four main parts to doing a Bible study. Now, one of the things I did with my kids... All of my kids. I taught them certain skills because when they left home, I wanted them to be able to do these things. Okay, whatever that may be. For example, Kimberly and I taught our boys to cook. So Monday night, Joshua would cook. So mum didn't have to cook that night. On Tuesday night, Helen would cook. Wednesday night, you know, Steve would cook. Friday night, help us, Lord, Nathan would cook. <laughs> Friday night, myself maybe, and or Kimberly. But the point is, is that in the same way that you want your children to learn skills, be it that academic, practical round, you know, how to use a lawnmower, how to fix stuff, how to paint, in the same way, there are some very practical skills that we need to learn. And here's my concern. Many people, like young people today, leave home not able to accomplish the basic tasks. So, one of my heart motivations in doing this series is to give people the skills to study the Bible themselves. It's one thing for Ben to go to Izzy, open your mouth. Izzy, you've done this, wipe up, mess everywhere. You know. Another mouthful, another mouthful. You've all done that, right? Yeah? And that's perfectly fine at Isabel's age. It would not be acceptable when she was three or four, let alone 20. So today, we're going to take the look, and if you haven't caught up with the other ones, I'd encourage you to pick up the podcast, either on SoundCloud or iTunes, and we're going to look at how to understand the meaning of a text. Now, the reason why this is important, I have seen people who call themselves mature Christians get themselves into serious pickles serious pickles because they don't know how to apply and understand what the Bible says. And they take things out of contexts. So, last week I mentioned there were four parts to a Bible study. So when you look at a verse, you're, you're to ask, and that's what we looked at last week, observation, or what does it say? Nothing fancy about this, but be clear. Now the first thing I need to do is remove my cell phone anywhere from me. Have you ever been in a meeting? When you're talking to somebody, and next minute that blinking thing goes beep and that person's going, Yes, yes, yes and they keep looking, huh? Very distracting. In the same way, I sometimes think the Lord may feel our heart is divided. Are we focused on the on his word and his love letter to us, or are we focused on other things? So the first thing we need to look at, and we're going to drill into this, is what does it say, in other words, observation? And the second thing is interpretation. We're going to talk about this today. What does it mean? Very important, what does it mean? Thirdly, what do other verses say about this, or correlation? In other words, what you're reading here should not be contradicting something over there, because God never contradicts himself. And if you come across and thing, whoa, where does that go? The first thing you need to do is balance one verse off against another to get the whole counsel of the Word of God. And then most importantly, after we studied it, we understood what it meant correctly, then we need to get to this next part, which is what do I do about this? What does this mean I should do? Because the Bible is real clear. If we're here and we don't do, we deceive ourselves. And my heart as a pastor is that not one person at New Hope should ever be deceived. So, today we're going to look at interpretation and correlation. How do I understand the meaning of a text? And I've chosen one of the passages which is very vivid in John chapter 15. And it's going to go through 1 through 17. So I'm just going to talk through and read through. I'm going to model then how to get meaning out of this, how you can pull meaning out of this. Now, how many of you ever heard this statement, for example? Statement number one. God doesn't expect us to be fruitful, just faithful. Has anybody ever heard that? Anybody? Okay, I'm glad because I've heard a lot of preachers try and say that. That is not what Jesus says, as we're going to see today. God expects us to be fruitful. In fact, it's actually one of the major themes of the New Testament, fruitfulness. In fact, I planted some, um, some, I think, lime trees. Lime trees take up to six years to develop fruit. And my wife keeps saying to me this morning, darling, when are you going to get some limes off these lime trees? They've been in the ground five years, so I'm hoping this year i will start to see some flowers. But God expects us to be fruitful, Fruit. Proves the identity of the plant, and it also determines and is indicative of the health of the plant. That lime tree, if it really is a lime tree, and somebody doesn't swizzle me at the shop, will produce limes. (laughs) That's the idea. And fruit is a natural consequence of being connected to that lime bush in this case. So let's pick it up here in John chapter 15. It says this, and you can follow along the screen, or if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along. I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. So far, so good. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Interesting. Did you notice that? He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You all are already clean because the word I have spoken to you remain in me and I will remain in you. Now this word remain means to be connected, Come kind on, of like being connected to a vine. Be attached to the vine, remain connected. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in or connected to the vine. Neither can you bear fruit, there's that word again, unless you remain in me. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me, I, and I in him, he will be a much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and tossed or thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it would be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands to remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Wow. That is a long piece of scripture. And there's enough spiritual truth in that, that we could go four months in that, in that lot alone. It's chock but we must limit our, con- uh, our, our study. So today I want to con- focus on the concept of fruit. But I also want to show how a verse can be misinterpreted if we ignore the basic rules of interpretation. Now, you may have heard some people say that when you talk about the Bible, they they kind of got this idea. They say, well, that's just your interpretation. Has anybody ever heard that? Right? Okay. And when they say that, it's just like, as if you can have your interpretation and I can have my interpretation and they are all equally valid. That right there is not true. Each verse in the Bible put your safety belts on has only one meaning. It has only one interpretation but it can have multiple applications. I want to be real clear about that. Depending upon whether you're a man or a woman whether you're young or old, whether you live in the 21st century or in the 1st century it can have many different applications. Now there are correct ways to interpret the Bible and there are incorrect ways to interpret the Bible. And if you don't know the correct ways to interpret the Bible, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Many of you have heard how some people willy-nilly just say, well Lord, what do you want me to study today? Uh, and they get the Bible and they open it up like this and they go this one here. And it says, Judas went out and hung himself. Oh, I don't like that. Give me another one, Lord, please. Go and do thou likewise. Whoa, that's even worse. Let's try another one. And what thou doest, do it quickly. <laughs> that's what you call the skip and dip method. It is insanity. It is never the way the Lord designed the word to be read never so i'm going to show you how to interpret verses correctly so that when you listen to somebody on the radio or on tv you go hold on no way is that right you need to be like good bereans who check the scriptures to see if these things are so so you look from this side and that side of the scriptures so let's pick this up here's here's a problem verse. But I've heard some outrageous interpretations on. Verse 6. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's been thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. That verse right there, I've heard radio preachers say this. Well, the fruit of a Christian and another Christian. An apple produces apple, okay. But then they twist it to say, if you don't bring people to Christ, God will throw you away and you'll burn in hell. Oh yeah, I've heard that. Is that what that word, verse means? No way, not at all. That is a gross misrepresentation of what that verse means. Until you get your arms around you, the the rule, basic rules of interpretation. So what I want to do today is I want to use this passage, I want you to learn some basic rules of interpretation. The first basic rule of interpretation is, number one, to consider the historical context. In other words, Who is it being spoken to and why is it being spoken? Who and why. The historical context is very important. Way before, long before you ask, what does it mean to me? You need to understand what it meant to them in that context. See, many of the letters in the New Testament are written to correct wrong things. And if you don't know what those wrong things were, you'll get, you've got a set of answers, but you don't know what the problem was. So you can misapply it. So firstly, what does it mean to them? Chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is giving, picture this now. This is going to be one single conversation. Chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is giving his final words of comfort to his disciples before his arrest on that final night. It was very important to understand the context of this extended conversation. All happens in one go and one night. 13, 14, 15, and 16. And then in 17, John 17, he prays for them. Then he's arrested and he's taken away and crucified. So I want to take a little time for you to see the importance now of context. Surrounding words. Surrounding events that are going on. So here he is. He's handpicked his disciples, and he takes them to a private room. It's to have a private conversation. It's the upper room. This is the context of where we are. It's the Passover, or some would say Holy Communion. It's a very intimate gathering of his most trusted followers. It's not the 120 It's the twelve. There they are. This is the context. He's just invested three and a half years of living with these guys, eating with these guys. He loves them. And what you're about to what we're looking at here are his final instructions. His last conversation before he goes to the cross. And he's concerned for them. You know why? Because he knows they're gonna be devastated. By some circumstances that he already knows what's going to happen when he's crucified. They're going to be devastated. They're going to be shocked. And in the intimate relationship with those he loves most, he starts the conversation back to John 13. And Jesus models here serving each other. And verse 1 here, it says, it was just before the Passover feast that Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father having loved his own who were in this world, in other words, the disciples, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So what he's going to say now, in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, he's going to show the full extent of God's love to them and for us as well. The Bible says the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist and after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet Drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now this was an incredibly intimate scene. Jesus knows who he is. And what's about to happen. And where he's going to go. And then he performs an act of service to the disciples. That astounds them. This was done traditionally by as it were the local maid or the servants. And by the way. Interesting point there. You can't serve other people until you know who you are. Because you'd be too insecure to serve anybody else. When you're secure in who you are, then you can serve others. In those days, nobody wore shoes like we've got them today. Everybody wore sandals. And when you got to a person's place, your feet were often filthy. They were sweaty and dusty and stinky. And it was a common custom then when you went to somebody's house today, we often offer them a drink. In those days, what would happen is the servants would come and they would wash your feet and it would be a refreshing time. And it would lift the mood. But here's the point. It was always done by servants. Always. And here's Jesus Doing the absolute unexpected thing. The King of kings, Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, takes off his clothes, wraps a towel around himself, and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. By the way, knowing that in his foreknowledge that this lot, bar John and the women, would scarper in fear of their life. They can't believe what's going on. He's serving them like the lowliest of all servants. He comes to Simon Peter. I love this guy. Sometimes I see some of myself in Simon Peter. Maybe you too. He comes to Simon Peter and he says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like indignant. And Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing now. But later you'll understand. And by the way, you don't understand what Jesus is doing in your life right now. But it's often in retrospect that we see what happens. And Peter goes, no, Lord! Right there, that's a contradiction in terms. You cannot use the word no and Lord in the same sentence if you're a Christian. He's either the Lord and you say yes or no and he's not your Lord. No, Lord, doesn't work. You don't say no to God. And Peter says, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, Unless I wash you, you'll have no part with me. Now, notice this. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Then not just my feet, but my hands, my head, under my arms, everywhere. Where do I dump in? Can you see the flip flop? It's hilarious. Sometimes maybe we were a little bit like that. Jesus answered the person who has had a bath needs only needs only to wash his feet his whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you for he knew who was going to betray him and that is why he said not everyone in other words Judas at this point was still in this room And when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, and he said, Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Then, for the rest of the chapter, Jesus emphasizes the importance of knowing, of loving each other. He knows a tough time they're about to go through. Move forward one chapter, John 14, we're getting the context here. Next, Jesus makes a number of promises to them. Still talking to the same guys, apart from Judas has just left out the door to go and do his business. And he says to them, don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. And you're going to be able to pray and ask for anything in my name, he says in verse 12 through 14. And you can talk to me at any time. You are not alone. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit who's going to live in you and never ever leave you. He'll comfort you, he'll guide you, he'll correct you. He'll give you the desire and the power to do my will. And lastly, he says, I'm going to give you the gift of peace. Not as the world gives, because you'll find everything that the world offers is a mirage. It offers you joy and happiness and peace. And when you get there, you find it lasts by the while. He says, the peace I give you is not as the world gives Last chapter of, uh, of uh, verse of chapter 14, verse 31. He says, come now, let us leave this place. Where's that? The upper room. So now they're going to go out from the upper room, following the same conversation. Now as they walk along through the gardens of Gethsemane, Jesus sees the vineyards. And he sees the fruit. I think there's a picture of that coming up somewhere anywhere. And it's going to be... Here's the deal, he, he uses that as, a, as, a, as a, an object lesson. He says, look, if you're connected to me, the trunk, and you're the branches, your fruit will grow. And he concludes his object lesson with these words in verse 11. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And this is the context. Who's he talking to? The disciples. Why is he saying it? To encourage them. So who? The disciples. Why? Encouragement. Knowing the context is important. Now, question. Going back to that ridiculous interpretation I told you back in verse 6, what are the odds of Jesus saying his last words of encouragement to his dearest friends who he knows are going to be discouraged by saying, hey, you're going to lose your salvation and burn in hell if you don't bear fruit. About next to zero. And then I've told you this so that your joy will be full. Doesn't make any sense at all, does it? So the context is makes an interpretation absolute nonsense. So the point here is always look before and always look after the verse. Second, define key words. Now I'm sure this has never happened in your marriage or with your girlfriend or boyfriend but Kimberly and I will often start, and even my sons will start discussing something, and we'll be arm wrestling about something. And sometimes I say to my, eyes, oh, I can see it when I'm not involved, and I say, Excuse me, you boys, I think you're talking past each other. That means they're all arguing their point, but they've defined words differently. And, and, and well, maybe you've done that with your wife. I mean, let me take, for example, the word grass. Has that got multiple meanings? Grass? Of course it does. What about batter? Of course, it can be a liquid mixture. It can be, you know, like fish and chips and stuff like that. No, or, in, or in cake. It could be a cricket player. Define your key terms. So when you look at a verse in the Bible and you see a word, you and I can automatically assume it means something. For example, in that problem verse, fire equals hell. No, it doesn't. In John 15, let's take the word fruit. Fruit is mentioned nine times in 17 verses, and fruit and fruitful 44 times in the New Testament. It's got at least 10 different meanings. It's important to define terms so we're not confused. You can't just arbitrarily define a word. So, for example, on this screen there, here's just a couple. I just wrote down maybe eight of them. The fruit of repentance in Matthew 3, eight. That's one type of fruit. Another one, 26-29, the fruit of the vine. That's in terms of talking about communion. A third one will be, in Romans 7-5, we bore fruit for death. That's all about sinful lifestyle. Romans 15-28, receive this fruit. That was an offering in that case, in that context, of money. That was a fruit. Another one will be, Galatians of 5-22, the fruit of the Spirit. They are nine godly attitudes. Another one in Ephesians 5.9, the fruit of light, which is truth, righteousness, and goodness. Colossians 1.6, the gospel is bearing the fruit and growing new believers. That's important. That's fruit as well. And Hebrews 13.15, praise to God, the fruit of our lips. So what's the definition of fruit in chapter 15? What is Jesus meaning when he says we must bear fruit in this context? And these are important last words. One thing I've noticed when somebody's about to die, they'll often get the loved ones to come close. They'll say, Come close. And often, with a weaker voice, they will say things which are really, really important. So we need to lean into that then and say, This is important. So, which brings us to the third principle the principle of interpretation. And here's what I want you to remember. Whenever you are confused or whenever you don't know what the deal is, always interpret unclear passages with clear ones. Always interpret unclear passage with clear ones. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. (laughs) Get your arms around all of it. And in this passage, we find three clear characteristics for growing spiritual fruit. Verse 4 says this, Remain in me. And I will remain, stay or abide, or continue to connect in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, but it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So, if I was writing an observation on this as a Bible study, I would write this down and say, Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. That's what it would say. Single observation. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. And the opposite of that is I can't bear fruit that will last if I'm not connected to Christ. Because any fruit, here's something to, to pop in your mind: any fruit that lasts is always connected to Christ and the cross. Everything else is vaporware. Not, no houses, no buildings, no countries. They're gone. They will not remain. Anything that lasts is connected to Christ on the cross. That means bearing fruit is an inside job. See, as much as I want my lime tree to produce limes, I've got to wait till it produces it naturally, comes out. I can't just go go down to this grocery store and sort of glue them on and tell my wife, hey, look, it's producing fruit. (laughs) She ain't going to buy that one. Bearing fruit is an inside job. You can't just take it on. It's not imitation. It is inhabitation of the Spirit of God that produces it. God's Spirit flowing in and through you just like sap. Verse 8 says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Wow! Wow! That's a powerful verse. So the second thing I would write there is bearing fruit brings glory to God. That is not a stretch from that verse. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ, firstly. Secondly, it brings glory to God. Then, verse 11, the third characteristic. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So Jesus tells us here, his motive for talking about bearing fruit is that our joy may be complete. So we write, bearing fruit will bring joy, will give me joy. So bearing fruit not, we haven't quite defined that yet. We're going to get to that. Whatever it is, it's going to do three things. Remain is produced by remaining in Christ. It brings glory to God, and it's going to give me great joy. Now I'm interested. What is this fruit? I'm supposed to be a fruit, clear, so I better figure out what it is. It's kind of like if I work for a a, um, a company, and I'm... Supposed to produce something, I go to my boss and say, boss, what do you want to produce? And he's going to tell me, he's going to give me an example of what it looks like, so I can get after it. So when he comes back, I've actually produced something like what he's looking for. So how do do, do you do that? Well, you get the fourth principle. The fourth principle is interpretation. You look for the most obvious meaning. Now, that is totally the opposite of what some people try and do. What they try and do is look for some esoteric, mysterious, hidden meaning, which is a ridiculous way to read the Scriptures. Why would God give us the Bible to tell us what He's like and what He wants and then hide it from us? That's illogical. Let me give you the sentence. The purpose of God's Word is to reveal, not to conceal. The purpose of God's Word is is to reveal not to conceal or obfuscate. For example, I've been around long enough to remember or yeah, to remember a man by the name of Henry Kissinger. Anybody ever heard of that guy? Okay. <laughs> there was a ridiculous thing going around some churches to say that, well, if you can't take Henry Kissinger's name and you convert it into numbers, that's six, 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 he must be the Antichrist. You would not believe the number of gullible Christians who swallowed that. It is embarrassing. The purpose of God's word is to reveal, not to conceal. And if somebody comes, oh, well, all these secret Bible codes, you know, the History Channel. It's a bunch of hogwash. I can take Women's Weekly and use the same algorithm and come up with weird things if you get enough of Women's Weeklies. Now, which which reminds me of something else. Especially when it comes to a parable. I want to give you one principle on parables. You might want to write the word parable out the side there. Every parable predominantly has one meaning. One meaning and one meaning only. Do not look for details of every little bit and piece. You will get yourself off the garden path doing that. Don't try to force meaning into something. That's called eisegesis. That's reading meaning into it. uh, Exegesis is when you take meaning out of it. So let the Scripture speak for itself. So what's obvious about verse 6? If anyone doesn't remain in me, is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers, and gather them and throw them in the fire, as a burn. Now, so what it is, the main obvious meaning there is a fruitless tree loses its main purpose. If it doesn't bear fruit, it's not fulfilling its purpose. So what good is a fruitless tree? A fruitless fruit tree? Well, not much, unless it can be used for firewood. Which, by the way, is what he's talking about here. How did they cook their food in those days? Well, you even have to go to Uganda these days and there's smoke everywhere. <laughs> if we come back, I have to almost tear my clothes out because everybody uses coal cook. And firewood's used to cook your dinner. So you might as well use that energy for that. Actually, Jesus also talks about fire in the case of examining our work. Do you remember that one? And what's left? Wood, hay, stubble? Psh, up and smoke. But what's left is what's the real deal here. So if you had any wood laying around, that's energy for dinner. That's all he's saying. He's not talking about going to hell. He certainly will be talking about hell saying, I say all these things to make you happy. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't fit when you take it out of context. Next, when you let the text speak for itself, the meaning of fruit becomes obvious. 15.7. If you remain in me... And my words remain in you. You may ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Now he's talking about prayer. So I would write this down. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. Because there's less of me and more of him. I want to pray according to God's will, not my will. Because let me tell you, a lot of things I ask God for are like the junk mail from heaven. I just send millions of prayers up, hoping sometimes that one will stick. (laughs) That's not the way it works. It says, when you ask according to my will, this does not suggest that God will become your personal genie. Never is that in scriptures. The promise is conditional. If we're connected to the vine, we become more and more like Jesus. And our prayers will not be selfish but the kind of requests he would make, that he would want us to make. So Jesus received everything he requested. Why? Because his prayers were in alignment with the will of God, consistently and completely. Don't ask God for what you think is good for you. Ask God for what he thinks is good for you. 14.13 I will do whatever you ask in my name, there's that again, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, I'll do it. The second thing we learn is answer prayer brings glory to God. Answer prayer brings glory to God. So when your knees are shaking, kneel on them. When you're nervous, because it's hard to hurt yourself when you're on your knees. When you're swept off your feet, get on your knees. Or when you feel the sky is falling, lift up your arms and your hands and pray. 16.24. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and receive and your joy will be complete. And the last thing I'd say here is answer prayer gives me great joy. Did you know that over 20 times in the New Testament we are commanded to ask? Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. And James, literally, this is the brother of Jesus, says, you have not because you ask not. And in his final words, Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to leave you here. My body's going to go, but I will send my Holy Spirit to live in you. You can talk to me anytime you want because I am... Omnipresent and ask according to my will, and when I answer, it will give you deep joy. There is nothing quite like the experience of having prayer answered, it just lifts you. It's like man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, it gives you strength. The joy that Jesus gives is a deep felt contentment that transcends and outlasts difficult circumstances. And it comes from a place of complete security and confidence, even in the midst of trial. So when you don't pray, you don't cheat God, you cheat yourself. Because he'll find somebody else to pray through. Now here's the connection. Have you seen that yet? Between bearing fruit and answer prayer. Bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Christ. Answer prayer Comes from remaining in Christ. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. Answer prayer brings glory to God. Bearing fruit gives me joy, and answer prayer brings joy into my life. So, just in case the disciples didn't get it, Jesus ends this section with one last mention, verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. What's the first thing he talks about after he talks about fruit? Prayer. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So by looking at the word and looking at the context and letting this text speak to itself, you write this down. I bear fruit by asking in prayer. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about losing your salvation because you didn't win somebody to Christ. He's talking about fruit that comes through prayer. So prayer is the root of all fruit. And all other virtues flow from and through prayer. Prayer is the password to all that God wants to do in and through you. And the problem I've observed is we never have trouble praying when we're in trouble. <laughs> right? When we're in trouble, it's real easy to pray. uh, pray. But when we're not in trouble, we have trouble praying. Anybody else noticed that part of me? Point is this. God wants us to use prayer not as a spare tire that we pull out in an emergency. You only see the spare tire when you've got an emergency. What he wants you to use, see it as, as the wheel for driving everywhere. Prayerlessness is acting like a practical atheist. Because when you, pray, when you don't pray, you're behaving like you don't have a heavenly father who loves you deeply, who cares for you. You're acting like an orphan that God hasn't promised to take care of your needs, every one of them. And you're acting like the Zig Ziglar saying, if it's to be, it's up to me. Some things aren't. There's a lot of things out of your control and my control. You need to do what you can do and leave the rest in God's hands. So, finally, I want to wrap up by this. Notice what Jesus says here about the importance of putting into practice what I learn in God's Word. For example, if God speaks to person A about forgiveness. Let's just take that one subject, Forgiveness. And you know that's absolutely what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. And you go, no. That's a very dangerous place to be. Because he's already shown you. The light of the Spirit's coming, shown you the sin of unforgiveness. Now we need to cooperate with his Spirit and follow through. Because the Bible says here, Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The fool doesn't. He hears the words. He hears them all right. Forgiveness. And he doesn't. And his house is like a sand, uh, uh, built on sand, which collapses. So we need to stop talking on this one about prayer and pray. So maybe you want to write out an application statement of maybe what you need to pray about this week. On that note, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you created us to bear fruit, just as my lime tree or lemon tree is going to bear fruit. You created that for a purpose and you created us. You do not want our lives to be barren, you do not want our relationships to be barren, you want our lives to bear fruit. Thank you. That you created prayer so that we can talk to you. What an incredible privilege, Lord, the creator of the universe. The fact that you, who created this world, want to even listen to us, much less answer our prayers, is astounding. Thank you that you want me to be filled with joy. That is truly amazing. Holy Spirit, would you forgive us for our prayerlessness? for treating prayers like spare tires that we use when we get in trouble. Not for everyday life. I pray, Lord, that this church will be a church full of fruit bearers. Men and women who are bearing fruit for you and your kingdom. Bearing fruit in their lives and in their families and in every area through answered prayer. Lord, help us to pray more That we may see more fruit in our lives. Today, if you have never invited Jesus Christ into your life, would you just say in your mind, Jesus Christ, come into my life right now and save me. Change me. Forgive me for my sin. I want to be a fruitful person. I don't want my life to be barren. I want it to produce results for you, for my life to count. Holy Spirit, would you teach me to pray and to trust you and to love you. Thank you for loving me and dying on the cross for me in your matchless and powerful name. And everybody said, Amen.